Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, May 9th. We begin with a look at the current situation in Ukraine, where the Russian invasion continues now into its third month. We speak with Andrew Rasoulis from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on whether Russian President Vladimir Putin can consider the invasion a success as the country marks its annual Victory Day. Then details on a new COVID-19 study that explores cases of long COVID in children. We dig into the study with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, it's Motivational Monday, our weekly segment aimed at helping you achieve your goals and live your best life. This week, we speak with author Len Kuntz, who shares details on his new book, This Is Me Being Brave. Today marks Victory Day in Russia, marking the Soviet Union's defeat of Nazism. Now, President Putin wanted the war in Ukraine over in time for May 9th Victory Day celebrations. But what is the reality of the conflict and the the state of it in Eastern Europe right now? With some insight this morning, we're joined by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning once again to you, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, and thanks for having me again. So they are celebrating in Russia, uh, even though, really, there has been no victory in Ukraine. But that really doesn't matter to President Putin, does it? No, I mean, I mean, well, he'd like to have it, but he didn't. So, so what, what we saw then, therefore, in, in Moscow today was Putin delivered two key messages. Uh, one, uh, he said, okay, the commemoration of the Soviet victory uh, over German uh, Nazism uh, in World War II, the Great Patriotic War. And actually, he actually briefly mentioned uh, the fact that Western allies were also part of that equation. But then he goes on and he says, once again, Russia is faced with a threat. And this time, the threat is NATO enlargement. And so and he says, he goes back to the Russian negotiating uh, positions that were back in the fall when we were discussing this. And basically, in December, he, he, he refers to the, the notes that the Russians had sent to the United States and NATO asking to negotiate a, uh, a legally binding framework uh, security framework that would stop NATO enlargement. And then he goes on to say this didn't happen. So we, the Russians, had to take what he called a preemptive military action against Ukraine to stop the enlargement. And there's a subtext in there. Uh, I think your, your news coverage mentioned that about, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the neo-Nazis in, in, in Ukraine as well, which he briefly mentioned that as well. And he linked that to the Bandera movement that Ukraine national said in alliance with Nazi Germany against the Soviet Union. So there is that subtext. But the main emphasis of Putin's uh, speech in today's context was that Russia is once again involved in a struggle against not just Ukraine, but the, the West and, and threatening, threatening Russia. It's big picture stuff we're talking about. And uh, Andrew, I'm wondering if you can give us the latest on the ground. And I know that on the weekend, the big news was that the last of the Ukrainian civilians that were trapped in that steel plant in the port city of Mariupol have been evacuated. Uh, but where is the attack on the ground right now uh, from the Russian invaders? Are, are they pulling back? Are they really refocusing? Both. Uh, they, they, uh, certainly they're focused now on the Donbass. I mean, they, they've given up on the rest of Ukraine. That, that's been around for about a couple of weeks now. So the battlefield is the Donbass itself, the entire uh, regional, administrative region of the, of, of the Donbass, including the two self-declared republics of Lansk and Donetsk within that. And Mariupol is in the southern part. 
Uh, so it's in, it's in the Donetsk part. And that city, as you mentioned, that steel mill, um, what's left is, is a, uh, it's not, the figures are not clear. It's somewhere less than 2,000, uh, maybe 1,000, uh, Ukrainian fighters from something called the Azov Brigade that continue to hold out. But they are completely surrounded there. Uh, and basically the Russians do control the, the rest of the city, and, and, and the steel mill is cauterized by the seaport. Now, the battle in the rest of the Donbass is going back and forth. Uh, I guess you can say the Ukrainians have mounted successful counterattacks, particularly in the northern part of that, of that front. The, the Russians are making some uh, progress in the more southern part. So in, in layman's terms, it's a war of attrition that is going back and forth, both sides attacking and counterattacking. Andrew, you know, with with Putin today using his Victory Day speech to to really kind of tell the Russian people that the reason they attacked Ukraine was to protect Russia. Are the people buying into that? Do you think still? I mean, I know it's it's hard to get the message, um, you know, uh, hard to get the true message into the people of Russia, but is that happening? Are, are people understanding what's going on or do they really just take Putin at his word because that's all they know? So the best that we can tell from here, because again, our, our reporting, Western reporting in Russia is quite limited now. And so, but what the picture that we are able to put together thus far is that the majority of Russians are relying on the messaging of the state media. So therefore, the majority of Russians are buying the narrative. Uh, it, it's likely that there is perhaps no great enthusiasm for it, but neither is there opposition at that level. There is a sort of, they'll go along with it. Um, uh, now, there are, of course, uh, reports of certain oligarchs uh, and certain members of the elite that are opposed to the war, and, and some have voiced their opposition. So it, it's not uniform there at all. And some of the intelligentsia and, uh, and younger people have actually left Russia. Uh, when the war started. But the majority, you can say that the, there's a firm base still. Putin has a base of support still. What can you tell us, uh, Andrew, about uh, Belarus? Because it seemed to me, uh, you know, unified with Russia, but we're hearing reports over the past week or so about uh, some saboteurs, people trying to undermine the Russian attack coming out of Belarus. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the Belarusians, they, don't forget, they, they had, a, they had a, a near revolt against Lukashenko uh, what, a, year, a year plus ago. And he's, Lukashenko has managed to squash that and, and, uh, and maintains his control. But he's been very careful on this. Um, I mean, he, he's, he's not 100% in control. I and mean, he, is, he is the ruler. But, you know, if he pushes too far, he could reignite those, uh, those protests. And, you know, in his interviews uh, uh, last week, uh, he, he spoke with a, a Western uh, reporter of some sort. And basically he said, you know, he didn't think while he agreed with Russia in terms of this war against NATO enlargement, he didn't think it was going to drag on this long, he said, almost like a fatigue he had, you know. So uh, Belarusia has, has some issues, and they're not getting involved in the war, I mean, in terms of actually direct Belarusian troops. There had been talk about that a few months ago that they might get involved, but I basically I don't think they have the political strength to do that. So what they contribute in that sense is supply lines for the Russians, and, and they, the Russians can then stage exercises in Belarus to try, which they have done the last few, few days, in fact. There has been some exercises there to kind of pin down Russian, uh, Ukrainian forces in the north. 
so they because they rush the Ukrainians can't say well they're not going to come because they might and so therefore you you exercise and pin some forces down mm-hmm. and keep those Ukrainians from contributing to the defense in the Donbass. It's a complicated situation. We'll continue to update it with you. Thank you so much again for your time this morning, Andrew. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you, too, and thank you for having me again. Take care. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. And, of course, we know the Prime Minister uh, was in Kiev yesterday in the area, opening up the Canadian Embassy once again. It's very interesting. It's good to see these Western leaders, including ours, uh, making uh, the trek, uh, not just uh, you know verbalizing and, and uh, writing uh, checks for support, but physically being there. It's incredible. Over two years into the pandemic, pediatricians are trying to figure out the puzzle that is COVID-19 when it comes to kids, specifically long COVID. It's the focus of a new study produced by the National Institutes of Health. And to discuss the results, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. This is very interesting because it seems like COVID doesn't initially affect kids the same as we adults. Uh, but uh, that's what makes the study even more surprising, isn't it? That long COVID could have a presence? Yeah, I was very surprised to hear the stat of 5 to 10% of uh, a pediatric population who gets COVID could have persisting symptoms or so-called post-COVID or long-haul COVID, uh, that it's that high because that hasn't been my experience in the community uh, to the to the to, to today, I've uh, definitely not seen what I would have thought as five to ten percent having this uh, chronicity. So, what do you take away from the research, then, Doctor J? Well, it's interesting. We know in adults, definitely, there's a chronic fatigue syndrome or the long haul COVID like symptoms uh, definitely are real, and we've seen it for sure. Uh, typically, respiratory or that real chronic fatigue. People just really just not getting their energy back, and this can last for months and months. Uh, but this blurring into the pediatric population is the oddity because typically in this population, we've not seen uh, a lot of kids who are getting really, really sick. Like generally, kids have done very well with COVID for the most part. Uh, and so the notion that uh, there is a, a proportion that are going to have long haul also is just very disappointing. Uh, to hear and to know that we're going to be dealing with this down the road. Dr. J, what are the signs? You know, maybe my child had COVID a couple months ago. Um, what should I look for to see if there's, if so, there's any Yeah, so typically, typically COVID in, in the uh, kids' population is very respiratory or GI, right? Cough, uh, runny nose, maybe a bit of diarrhea. But this is where uh, it just does not go away, particularly the fatigue doesn't go away. So kid is really, really has no energy. And kids generally are the ones, you know, who pop out of this and running around very quickly, but that just doesn't happen. They might have a cough that persists or complain of chest pain or shortness of breath. They may complain that they, they can't think clearer, that their head is sort of foggy, uh, maybe headaches, um, maybe still have trouble with uh, taste or smell that c- continues on. Uh, one weird symptom is a, uh, abdominal pain, but not uh, not like cramps, like where the actual belly muscles are, t- are tender to touch. So a very odd symptom, that one. Uh, joint or muscle pain, maybe persistent rash. So all those kinds of things. If your kid has had COVID and has persistence of those kind of symptoms, they might have a long COVID. Uh, and we're, I know we're going to get to the statement, but this is definitely where you want your family doc involved potentially a pediatrician involved, potentially 
uh, a kid involved in some kind of a research protocol to help out with these long-term symptoms. Great reminder. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. J. Appreciate it. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Six oh nine. It's mornings with Sue and Andy here on seven seventy CHQR. This is Motivational Monday, a chance to get you motivated for today and beyond. Joining us this morning is Len Kuntz, author of the new book "This Is Me Being Brave." Good morning to you, Len. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us, bright and early on a Monday morning to kick off the week. So, can you tell us about your book and what you are being brave about? Uh, I've been writing full-time now for the last 12 years, and this is my, actually my fifth book. But while the others were poetry and short story collections, this one is composed of personal essays. In uh, 2018, the editor of the online literary magazine Ghost Parachute approached me about writing for the blog, and I was hesitant at first because I'm a poet and I'm a fiction writer. And when I asked him, well, what would I write about? He said, you can write about anything as long as it's not fiction. And that sounds, you know, pretty easy on the surface of things, but I had a pretty messed up childhood. And uh, the way I would kind of deal with it was writing stories. And most of them were almost entirely true, but I would just change a few details. And so... It was cathartic in so many different ways, Um, but I wasn't, like, being honest, uh, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then with these essays, uh, there wasn't really any music in the language. They were pretty straightforward, which is a different style of writing for me. But I wrote about my, you know, my flaws. I wrote about my depression, my struggle with alcohol, um, my dysfunctional childhood. I wrote about um, eating disorders, but I also wrote about like having a sense of wonder that children have and that we lose, you know, right around the age of five or six. And um, the amazing thing was I've had over 1,200 pieces published, poems and short stories, but these essays resonated with people so so much more than what I thought my best writing was. Sure. Um, because so many yeah. people can relate to it, right? All those things you mentioned, that that's all of us. So, you know, it's it. I think uh, probably a lot of people appreciated you being brave, putting yourself out there because they could see themselves in you. So what did you learn from it then, Len, by, by being brave and being honest? Were there lessons that you were able to take from that? Yeah, there's so many. I mean, I think... Well, I'll center on the thing about my drinking. Um, That was really scary for me to write, and then it was really scary for me to send it out and have it be published so everyone can see me naked with all my scars. But what was so astounding was I had so many people reposted to that um, and reposted it and reposted it and reposted it. I got notes, I got calls, I had people come up to me crying, saying that, you know, that's something I'm dealing with too. And as you said in the beginning, the ultimate discovery was we're way more alike than we're different. 
And then probably the second biggest one is when you are um, willing to make yourself vulnerable to others, they're kind of shocked by it in a way like, oh, wow, you're really going to share that with, with the world and with me and whatever. And then they, in turn, just kind of let down their guard and they share all their garbage and all their stuff they're grappling with. So I would say those are the two biggest ones. It's interesting to me, Lennon, like you say in the to perhaps your book will open up conversations, eyes, and, and have people look at themselves and, and maybe those close to them in a different light. But it seems to me you had these tools, uh, but you, you almost personally, with your writing background, you have the creativity inside of you there, needed an invitation to be honest to yourself. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, not to be redundant, but... You know, I was always focused on uh, writing fiction or poetry and kind of camouflaging the things I didn't like about myself. Um, and then once I started writing these essays and getting all the feedback that I got, I thought, wow, okay, well, I'm just going to let loose. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody everything I don't like about myself and how I'm trying to fix it. Um, but hopefully in each of those pieces, there's hopefulness um, beneath uh, the bigger picture. It can be very empowering confronting your failings, can't it? Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. Um, yeah, because you get so much support. Um, I belong to a pretty tight-knit literary group, and we're really good about supporting each other, almost to a fault, so we you know, to the point where you post a piece and they are so effusive about it, you wonder, is it genuine? Um, or are they just blowing smoke, you know? Um, but with these pieces, I could just tell that it was pinging at a place in their heart because of the way they replied, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one, one of the points, of the uh, bullet points, is that it... Uh, you're going to be focusing on what it means to love like it's the only love you'll ever have. And for me, that means, you know, kind of, if, with lack of a better term, going all in. Uh, how, how how does somebody approach that? Because it's it sounds like quite the commitment and, and maybe a different headspace we've been in. Well, that's something I've talked about a lot. And each of these pieces, with the exception of the title pieces, is me being brave, is titled The Thing About My Parents, The Thing About best friend, the thing about my drinking, the thing about my weight. And there's one piece called The Thing About Love. And, you know, I've been married uh, almost 40 years now. And when you first fall in love, it's like, it feels like you're on the best drugs ever because you literally are on drugs because your body is sending all this dopamine through it. And, um, you know, you're giddy, you're happy, you're alert, you're attentive, you're paying close attention to everything that person says. And then, you know, like six to eight months later, that those endorphins are gone. And you have to make a choice. And for me, what I've come to learn is that love is not an emotion. It's actually a choice. And you have to choose as I change and that person changes Am I going to adapt? And how am I going to be fully present in the moment? 
how am I going to try as close as possible? You can't do it, of course, 100%. But how am I still going to be with that partner who, when I first met her, um, I couldn't get enough of her. You know, she could do anything. She Mm -hmm. could step on my feet. She could, you know, and it it was bedazzling to me. Um, And so that takes work. You know, it does not sound romantic or sexy, but love is really teamwork (laughs) at play. It's beautiful. I love your story. I can't wait to read the book. It's called This Is Me Being Brave. That is author Len Kuntz at Len Kuntz, K-U-N-T-Z on social media. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story, Len. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.